This is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. I'm Jason Garcia, and this is Faithful Sayings. Many years ago, a lady by the name of Cordy Bridgewater wrote a hymn called How Beautiful Heaven Must Be. And I think one of the interesting and appropriate things about that hymn is that it has little to say about the visual appeal and visual aesthetics of of heaven, though to be sure in Scripture teaches that when we see heaven, we will uh, no doubt believe that it is, is beautiful. Uh, but the hymn, like Scripture, you know, speaks to the mystery to some degree of how we will experience heaven in, in a sensory kind of way. Um, you know, remember Paul in Second Corinthians twelve when he is speaking of his vision of paradise, he says that he heard things that were too wonderful to express in in, in human words, that it couldn't be put into human words. And we have indicators and descriptors in places like Revelation twenty one of a glassy sea and. Um, walls made out of jewels and things, things like this, and and so there's, there, there's no doubt again that heaven is going to be beautiful to see and experience in that way. But it, the scripture I think speaks to, and the hymn also speaks to, the where heaven really derives its beauty from, and that is from other elements that the blessings that we will enjoy when we, by the grace of God, find ourselves there. Uh, things like being in the presence of God and being in a place so wonderful that we wouldn't come back even if we had the chance and opportunity to to come back. And so even though the song speaks to the mystery as far as how, again, we will experience heaven in a, in a sensory kind of way, a visual way, and what, what we'll hear and things like this, you know, as the refrain says, heaven, heaven must be, how beautiful heaven must be, the author arrives at that conclusion because of, of the other things that she wrote within the hymn that Scripture mentions. You know, namely, again, being in the presence of God, being free and being and being wholly pure and things like this. And those are, those are the things I want to think about with you this morning. I want to meditate on some of those, those blessings and, and the reasons why heaven will be so beautiful. What, what makes heaven beautiful? beautiful. And I think a good place to start, um, a good, you know, place to start is Revelation 21. You know, if I believe, if I believe God's word, that there is so much more awaiting me than I can even begin to imagine. And in spite of my relatively good life, comfortable life, um, there still have been moments of intense pain and grief and anguish. And I'm sure for most of you, there has there have been times of even more intense pain and grief and anguish. But in heaven, none of those things. No, no. There's no suffering that can invade it. There's no, uh, there's no sin and things like this that we'll talk about more. That Revelation twenty one mentions, and so I want to begin in Revelation twenty one and, and read verse three, which says that the. The tabernacle of God is among men. Behold, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and he shall be his people, they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And the first thing that 
you know, that we see here that makes heaven so beautiful is that God dwells there in a special sense. And there is this special communion that he has with his people in this place that heaven is, is heaven because our Lord is there. Our savior is there. And, and when we think about passages like Matthew chapter 14 and other parables that describe a judgment scene or the, you know, the coming of Jesus to receive his people to himself, it's likened to a wedding feast or a celebration or something like this. It's it's a culmination of a, a consummation of a relationship, uh, really. And that's one fact that makes heaven so beautiful is that our God is there. and He dwells there in a special sense. You know, we know that God is omnipresent and omniscient and, you know, meaning he's all knowing and he's he's present everywhere all the time. And there's no place that we can go on earth where we can escape him. And, and Jonah had to find that out the hard way. But uh, but the scripture also speaks of him dwelling in heaven in, in a special sense. You know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that while we are in this this tent, this body, we we groan and we we long to be clothed with our uh, our heavenly tent, and we want to be away from the body and and home with the Lord. And so, while Paul knew and said elsewhere that God was with him and wouldn't abandon him, he knew that he wouldn't be in the presence of God in this way unless he was in heaven. You know, just as he told the church in Philippi in Philippians one twenty three that it would be better to depart and be with Christ, but for their sakes he would remain on in, in the flesh. And so the the fact that our God dwells there in, the, in that way and that we can be near him and that he will dwell with us in this special way is, is um, what makes heaven so beautiful. And I, I want to look at something else that is said to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 15. So if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 15, uh, look what's said to Abraham here, beginning in, in verse 1. It says that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And, you know, that's one of the many promises that we see given to Abraham. But in, in particular, that last part of, of verse 1 about his reward being very great, if you're reading from the old King James Version, or perhaps you have a, a marginal reading that says, uh, I am your very great reward. So in keeping with that uh, same kind of uh, structure of I am your your shield, I, or I am a shield to you, God is saying to Abraham, I also am your very great reward or exceedingly great reward. And that's the rendering that I, that I kind of favor uh, because I think it speaks to a, a, an idea that runs throughout Scripture that we should desire heaven or we should desire uh, to be uh, with God because he is our he is a reward he is a prize in, in and of himself and it, again it will be heaven will be wonderful and beautiful because he is there and I think Abraham understood this and he looked beyond earthly earthly things and even the earthly promises that he was given because he knew God would be ultimately his exceeding great reward and he longed for a place where God dwelt and 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 a place that God was the builder of so to speak if you look in hebrews chapter 10 excuse me hebrews 11 i think that's that's what we see here that that idea coming through the text so this is hebrews 11 if you want to turn there with me hebrews chapter 11 and verses 10 and 16 so 
here in Hebrews eleven ten, uh, there's in chapter eleven there's quite a bit that's said about Abraham. But uh, look here in in verse ten, as it's speaking with regard to his sojourn or the fact that he was an alien in the land that God called him to dwell in. It says by by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So in verse 16, down, drop down, he says, as it is, and speaking of all these people that he's mentioned thus far, he says, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So if you're just thinking about verse 10, just in the immediate context, and there wasn't that commentary afterwards to, to follow, you might think that, well, Abraham was looking for you know the, the Jerusalem that God would eventually build there in, in Israel or something like, like this. But ultimately, no, the text says Abraham was looking even further down the road, and and he was obeying God on, on earth and sojourning in this foreign land because ultimately he knew that would lead him to the new Jerusalem, the, the heavenly city where God dwelt and where God is the architect and, and builder. That is what Abraham desired, and that's what we have to desire as well we have to long to be in the presence of god and we should long because it's going to be wonderful and that is one of the things that makes heaven so beautiful and when you think about it you know that's what god intended in the beginning because that harkens back to you know the the what he created in the garden paradise and in eden you know there was he placed man there with the tree of life and you know, you and then that was taken away. We don't read about the tree of life again until the book of Revelation. So there's, you know, there's that overlap in, in paradise, the paradise that God created in the beginning, and what we read about in Revelation 21. But also we see this unbroken communion and fellowship that God had with with man in the beginning, and if, and sin changed all of that. But in in heaven, uh, there there won't be any sin for those who have obeyed the gospel of Christ and who are. Uh, ultimately welcomed in, uh, that is one of the great blessings of heaven also and why it will be so beautiful. The fact that there is unbroken communion with God because there is there is no sin. And that's one of the points that the writer will make in Revelation 21 at the end of that chapter that no unclean thing will be allowed in in Revelation 21 verses 22 to, through 26. No pain, suffering, or death means no sin because sin is the cause of, of those things. And again, one of the great promises of heaven is that there will be no so no such unclean thing uh, or sin allowed in. And of course, that wouldn't be possible if if Jesus Christ hadn't made that possible. It was He who made fellowship this and this hope and this uh, potential glory possible. It was it was He that uh, came so that we can obtain that glorious destiny again that that God intended for us to have in the garden of Eden. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:17 that if any man is in Christ, he is is a new creation. He's a new creature entirely. He's been re- remade. And so, you know, there's that renewal language that we see similar I think to Revelation 21. Um and so we we have this opportunity to be united with God and reconciled to him again here in this in this life. 2 Corinthians 6 in verses 16 and 17 um, halfway down, I guess, verse 16, I, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. 
and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So there, there's that wonderful promise of, of fellowship that Paul is reminding the church at Corinth of, uh, of being reconciled, united with God, and the special relationship that we can have because of what Jesus has done. We can be sons and daughters to God Most High, and that He will dwell dwell among us. And 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 then in the fullest. In the fullest sense, of course, in, in heaven, but there's so much similarity there in that that language. You know, we can't we can't escape it. That again, Jesus is the reason that we can have this hope of of glory. And Paul will say elsewhere in Romans chapter eight and Second Corinthians four that there is glory yet to be revealed in us at, at the judgment. So not only do we have this this promise of again reconciliation and this great reunion that's going to take take place and 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 an eternal home with God, but also glory as as a result of of that. And Paul says that it's that it's not the glory that we have to look forward to is not is, excuse me the suffering that we experience in this life is not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us in in heaven. And when we look at at godly men and women of the past and, and other examples of, apart from Abraham. That we've considered, you know, they they too, like Abraham, were looking forward to to all of this—a home with God and this promise of glory and this promise of eternal fellowship with with Him. You know, there are several instances of of these folks being referred to as, as living as seeing that which is unseen. Yeah, that's used specifically of, of Noah, but it, essentially they they were walking by their faith, and that's exactly what we're called to do in Second Corinthians five and verse seven. We walk by faith. And not by sight, and so that we, so even though we haven't, we don't have a point by point visual description of heaven or what all the the glory that awaits us entails, and and things like this, uh, we nevertheless know that it's 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 certain and it's sure because of who made the promise. And you know, again, it says of Noah in, in Hebrews chapter eleven when he was warned, uh, for example, about the flood that that was coming, concerning events yet as yet unseen, he still acted upon his. His faith, in other words, he was certain, even though he had never seen water in that kind of volume before, he knew because of who told him that it was going to happen, that it was an absolute fact, and that it was certain. And so he lived and acted accordingly, and you know, built built the ark. and And Abraham too, going back to him, you know, it says and in, in earlier in that chapter in verse eight that he went to a place, he went out not knowing where he was going. So it was a total mystery to him. He had never seen this place before. So far as we know, he had never left his home, but because of who called him and because of the promises of who made the promises to him, God, that he acted and he responded accordingly. And he knew that it was certain. He knew that these promises to be, to be a fact. The writer also speaks of, of Moses uh, in verse 26, who was looking to the reward. He says, and then, then the very next verse, it says that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So the whole motivation, the whole reason behind Moses' actions, the reason that he was willing to leave his privileged position and suffer with God's people is because he deemed and he understood and he knew the reward of God to be greater than, than all the riches of Egypt. The reproaches of Christ, he says, he judged to be greater riches than, than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward, because he knew ultimately he would find a prize, a home, and glory with his God. And so godly men of the past, they, they look forward to this reward and fellowship with God, and that made the heavenly country to them, their heavenly home, all the more desirable. Even though, again, they, and, and we also don't completely understand and and can't 
visual visualize uh, what you know visualize perfectly at least what heaven would be like. They couldn't you know again they couldn't either, but they knew that God was there, and they knew the promises of God, and that was where they longed to be. You know, and one of those wonderful promises that we see in Scripture about heaven, and I think what makes heaven what will make heaven so beautiful is is the absence of tears and pain and suffering. You know, we go back to that text in Revelation 21 that has so much to say about our heavenly home. Verse 4 in particular says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. So one thing I certainly look forward to in heaven is the absence of those things named there. You know, all the loss and grief that we have borne on earth and that will that we will go through on earth and, and the worry about loved ones and the loss of loved ones and sickness and pain and all, you know all that heartache is just going to be gone the holy spirit says that god will just he will remove it and it will be a place instead of perpetual worship that we can you know safely say you know, when we look at the account, like in places of Revelation chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me, when we see the 24 elders and, and the creatures worshiping uh, the, around the throne of God, you know, there, there's um, the, the seraphim or some angels are described, I guess the, 20, the four living creatures rather, and they're described as being around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was who is and who is to come, and there in verse, the verse, verse eight, and then we have uh, others. If you drop down again in verse eleven, worshiping, saying, "Worthy are you, are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed, they were, and are created." And then we, and this continues into chapter five, and we, there's this uh, a brief interlude where this book with seven seals is is brought out, and uh, the question is asked, who is it that can open this this book of seven seals and and then the Lamb of God enters onto into, into chapter five and he is able to open this this book and of course there's a lot of symbology there but what what I want to focus on in particular is the is again this is a scene of worship and now that the Lamb is here that Christ is isn't um, brought onto the scene here he is also worship and they sang a new song in verse nine saying worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth and so this is a place of one of the things that makes heaven so beautiful is not just the absence of of suffering and pain and tears but that it's also going to be a place of 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 perpetual and continual worship and you know and on the authority of, of everything that we have that all that's revealed in the word of god i think we can say that any if we don't if we're bored and we're turned off by worship if we don't want to come to the assembly and worship then we're we're not ready for heaven because that's what we're going to be doing in heaven and we should delight in worship because again heaven will be a place of continual worship and that makes it that makes it beautiful I want to read Psalm 92, verses 1 through 4. You know, this is a, an example, a great example of an attitude that 
delights in worshiping God. And the psalm begins in Psalm 92, verse 1, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night, with a ten-string lute in the harp and with resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done, and I will sing at the works of your hands. Sing with joy at the works of your hands. And so... We should have this attitude not only here and now, but it, it, but that will carry over uh, in, into heaven. This worship should not be drudgery to us, and we should look forward to the time when there is no pain and tears, and we can worship our God uh, joyously, eternally, always, and that will make heaven beautiful. Another promise that we have that assuredly will make heaven beautiful is the promise of the crown of life. And this is spoken of many times in the scripture, realizing our hope to the fullest, our eternal life that will be granted to us. And, um, you know, the scripture speaks freely of winning a prize or receiving a prize. And, and for some reason that makes some people uncomfortable, Christians uncomfortable when we talk about the prize of heaven or the crown of life or things like this. And, I, I think I understand why, uh, based on what they say, and they uh, what makes them uncomfortable is this idea of um, heaven being kind of a mercenary affair and, and going in and simply being good uh, and obeying God for self-serving reasons. And and while, and while it's true we can do that, we can certainly do any number of behaviors for self-serving reasons, even do good things uh, that fall in line with the will of God for self-serving reasons and not to bring him glory uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone does does that and when we look in scripture we see Paul freely speaking of heaven as a prize uh, as a reward as a you know the crown of life specifically being one of it spoken of in a number of different places you know as the crown of uh, rejoicing and, and things like this uh, but I'm pre- I, I believe that it's all referring to the same same reward. But for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, in the beginning of verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so Paul is is visualizing his life as as a race in which heaven is the ultimate prize and and, and goal, and he's and he's saying that the that's there's nothing wrong with that. We need we should exercise discipline and self control so that we can compete at the top level, and that and so that we won't be disqualified. And we have to um, buffet our bodies and control our bodies so that we can ultimately receive the beautiful prize of of heaven. And so there's there's no reason to be ashamed or, or apologize for uh, talking and thinking intently about the prize, uh, the the goal, the reward of heaven. And we should always be sensitive towards self-serving mot- motives and examine ourselves and and call ourselves out and repent when when we find ourselves doing that. But we still have to run to win. Is Paul's point? Because heaven's going to be worth it, worth it all. And I think that's one of the things that makes it, uh, will make it so, so beautiful. And then finally, I think also 
a reason that heaven will be beautiful and must be beautiful is that our brethren are there. The ones who have departed before us or those who were, were innocent. And I think that this should heighten and enhance our desire for heaven. And, there, and there's nothing wrong with that. And for illustrative purposes, uh, you know, just c consider an example for me, with me, that you know, I, I've all for I, I've always wanted to visit the sea cliffs in Scotland. They're found all along the coast, but some of the tallest ones are as high as the Empire State Building, and it's a, and it's a silly thing, and it's just a, you know, like a a dream vacation, uh, if you will. But when I think about you know, going there and seeing those and standing on those cliffs and, and how cool that would be and, and awesome that would be. And, and and I think if, I wonder if there's anything that would enhance my desire even more to go and, and be there. Well, certainly one of the things that would make me more desirous of being in that place, it would be if my family were there waiting for me. And I would certainly make more diligent efforts to get there and desire to be there even more. And so, I, you know, I think in getting that, you know, we understand that example in, in, in earthly terms. And I think the same is true of, of heaven. If we know our faithful brethren who have gone on before us are there or our family, there are loved ones that we, we want to be there all the more with them. And we look forward to that reunion. You know, we, we, of course, we believe in heaven, and Christ has said that he has gone there to prepare a place for us in John 14. So I have no doubt that there is such a place and that he has received those who are faithful to him. I can't, I can't remember ever having lacked a desire to go there. But again, when someone, but, but the fact that we know that others have gone there before us and those that whom we have loved that and someone dear to us has has gone on before. That only serves, I think, to heighten our desire to be there with the Lord and to be there with them. And I think that was true for David. You know, after his his child died, he was a man of resolve. He was certain of his son's location, and he was determined to go there in, in 2 Samuel 12. You know, you think about his response to the death of that son versus how he responds to the death of his older son, Absalom, later in the book in 2 Samuel 18 and 19. David could not be consoled uh, when Absalom died. When Absalom, of course, lost his head and, and tried to usurp his father's throne, and then he goes on the run, and he ends up getting speared to death while he's hanging from a tree. And and David is just in, inconsolable when he finds out that Joab has killed his his son, and he just doesn't, you know, and we see in two chapters him saying, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, I wish it were me instead of instead of you. And David doesn't stop grieving for Absalom until Joab threatens him politically. And I think the reason for that is, is David didn't have any hope for Absalom. And he wouldn't stop grieving again until he was he was threatened. There's a difference then in his in his grief. For Absalom versus his his infant son, you know, and, and when his infant son uh, dies, David gets up and he washes himself, and he's determined and he is resolved to go and be with his son. And you know, you know, the, and that difference in grief too reminds me of Paul's words 
in First Thessalonians four thirteen, you know, when he is in speaking in that text of those of the saints who have departed, when he says, "I don't want you to be ignorant or unaware of those who have fallen asleep in in Christ, so that you you'll be like those who grieve without hope in in the world." In that last phrase, in particular, in verse thirteen, when he speaks of 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 grieving with without hope, I think there's an implied statement in that is that there is a way to grieve with with hope. And I think that's what David did. And so, you know, the tears may n- never stop when we lose someone we love. There will always be reminders and we can weep and we should weep, but we can weep as those as those and, and grieve as those who have hope. They can be good tears. You know, Job knew the pain of loss and in Job chapter 14, you know, he lost eight of his children on one day, among other things. And, you know, in, in Job, we see in chapters 10 through 34, all you know, all this back and forth between he and his friends, and he's on a roller coaster of emotions, and we see him hopeful, and we see him grieving, and sometimes we see him doubting, and sometimes we see him re- reaffirming his, his faith. And so in these, in these bright spots, we see uh, a man who, who knows what awaits him and is confident of what awaits him. And, and that's one of the moments I want to seize upon in Job chapter 14. And verse 14, uh, so he is despairing in Job chapter 14, and he's he's going on about the finality of, of death and how there are no second chances, and no one returns once they've gone to, to the grave. Um, but he says, if a man die, shall he live again? And all the days of my appointed time I will wait until my renewal shall come. You will call, and I will answer thee. And so Job, in a sense, is, is looking forward to his death. And, and as he's, you know, a number of times in this book calling for his death, but he says, I, I am going to wait. I'm going to wait for my appointed time until my change will come. And so while our loved ones are gone and there's an empty space in our heart that will never be filled again in this life, we can have the same resolve as Job and say, I will wait. I'll wait on the Lord until he calls me home. We can look forward to seeing them again. And not not only them, but also the face of our Savior, which is more important because he's the one who died and rose again from the dead and provided the way for that reunion to take place, that reunion with our loved ones to take place. And again, that's one of the reasons heaven will be so beautiful. So have we done what is necessary to have the hope of heaven? And do we look forward to the day of Jesus' return and joining him? in heaven.